Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Davey Mohan, founder and CEO of Burnmark, a research company that supplies data to all players within the FinTech ecosystem. Davey is also author of The Financial Services Guide to FinTech, panel member of the ING Group Think Forward Initiative, a lecturer, and much more. Davey wears so many hats across the FinTech world that we struggle to stay on just one topic. In today's episode, we discuss the changing role of fintech since she founded Burnmark, how she recommends students get up to speed on the fintech landscape, her plans for future publications, why fintech will disappear in the future, and that's not a bad thing, and much more. We end today's session with a rapid-fire round of questions. Enjoy the show. Hi, Davey, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I am so, so excited to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm really good, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. I have so many things I want to cover with you, so I might need your help to keep me on track. Uh, But maybe we can start by you quickly introducing yourself and letting our audience know how you found your way into fintech. Sure. I'm Debbie Mohan. I'm based in London. I run a fintech research company called Burnmark, and I feel like I have another 10 full-time jobs, but I do teach at universities. I write. I've published a book last year, and I'm in the process of writing the next ones. I also spend a lot of time blogging and on social media, which feels like a full-time job in itself. And I also do advisory and supporting projects, large banks, advisors, regulators, investors, and startups. So now everyone knows why I wasn't kidding when I said I have a lot of topics to cover with you. Um, But maybe we can start with Burnmark. So I think you founded this about five years ago. Uh, What prompted you to start the company? I started it um, as a result of problems I saw with my uh, last full-time corporate job. Um, I was in a large company that had access to a wide variety of research sources. And one of the things I really struggled to understand as a large financial company was how do you work with fintech startups? And this is way back 2014 or so, so quite a while ago now. And uh, fintech was new. Fintech was a hot new industry. Everyone wanted to understand more about what startups are doing. But how do you actually work with them? I think that remained a big question or a big gap in the wider market for everyone in that space. So I think the idea of Burnmark was to bridge that gap uh, by bringing data or market data into the front. So um, fintechs know exactly what they need to do to work with a large financial institution. And financial institutions know exactly how to work on what use cases with fintech startups. So to me, it was bridging that gap of converting the theoretical into a practical view of how do you actually work together. Have you seen that relationship between uh, incumbent financial services providers and startups and regulators evolve over over those last five years? Absolutely. So much has changed in the last uh, five years and, and so much has changed for the better. We have seen collaboration increase dramatically since then. Uh, We have thousands of use cases from around the world on how banks are working with fintechs. We see regulators working closely with uh, fintechs and regtechs and bringing banks together. Uh, We see other bodies and central banks bringing fintechs together. So it's been a fantastic ecosystem uh, in the last five years that we have seen in fintech happen. And I think data is still a challenge though. And I think that's what we focus on at Burnmark in that we put together that number, the, the market data to support you with this. But absolutely, the desire 
for collaboration has increased so many times and and the ways and process in which you can collaborate have improved so much as well. And does the company predominantly operate in the UK? And if not, have you seen any differences across uh, countries? We are based in the UK, but um, even before the pandemic, we've been a very virtual <laughs> company in terms of working. Uh, we have teams spread all over the world. Uh, we have data from around 85 countries. So it's quite global and quite focused on countries that are unexpected. So we find very interesting use cases on fintech from um, Latin America or uh, Mexico or African countries or from Asia that we bring to banks and financial institutions in Europe, in the US. Um, so we, we kind of track what's happening in uh, different parts of the world. It's almost like a full-time job. <laughs> I love the part where I get to travel, but um, I think that global view really helps understand the context of what you're trying to do. To give you an example, I mean, in the US, I worked with a bank where we were trying to do a payments project. A lot of the payments fintech startups are based in the US today, and they do amazing work. But the moment we started looking at Singapore and China and, and Indonesia in terms of payments markets, the scale changed. The kind of uh, innovation in, around things like QR-based payments changed. So the, the ability to bring those kind of use cases into the U.S. have been fantastic. And I, I think that's, that's the part that really excites me is telling people things they don't know about you know, unexpected markets. And, and like you said, every, every country is different. The way you work um, with fintechs is completely different from country to country. The way fintechs behave, uh, the way the products behave, the way consumers adopt these products are completely different. So there are lots of stories to tell. Yeah, I think the differences across geographies is one of my favorite components of fintech and one of my favorite things to learn about. So very interesting to see Burnmark operating across so many different regions. Can we talk a little bit about the competitor side? You mentioned up front that when you first started Burnmark, it was uh, fintech was a hot new industry. Since then, there's been an incredible increase in investments, uh, increase in media coverage. Have you seen more competitors pop up similar to Burnmark? Uh, how has that landscape evolved? Uh, yes, I would say that um, because I think the gap in the market was quite obvious. And it's not just us who saw that. And I'm glad in a way that um, there are different types of uh, providers in different parts of the world offering different kinds of data. I think Burnmark has a huge advantage still because we saw fintech happen before fintech actually happened at scale. And I think that gave us a big uh, push or an advantage um, that uh, others didn't have, uh, including large research companies. And one of the things I increasingly see is existing traditional companies coming into the space. But the level of disruption is still minimal when they do that. I mean, this is an age-old problem. It's not just a research problem, but it's a problem that's happened in, in the utilities industry, in electricity in Canada in the 80s, and uh, telecom industry in the US in the 90s, and, and banking industry in Europe in, in the 2000s. Disruption is hard for large companies to do, and it takes a lot to bring in that level of agility and the speed and the level of ground level knowledge that fintechs have and startups have in general. And I think that's where Burnmark has a huge advantage as well in that we, we operate closely with startups in different countries, which give us insights that large companies don't have. 
uh, and I think that really helps. And, and also other competitors, we, we don't see them as uh, competition essentially, uh, we, we treat them as partners trying to dig data from the market and give it to people who need it. I don't actually take a very difficult approach in terms of thinking, oh my God, there are so many new competitors, but rather think about how do we work together. So if you look at the research we do, tons of research we provide are to research providers themselves. Um, and and we, we take data from others as well. I think it can be a very collaborative ecosystem. That's great to hear. I know you're also part of the ING Group Think Forward initiative. Uh, could you just talk about that a little bit, please? Uh, the, the Think Forward initiative was launched as a partnership between ING Group, uh, Microsoft, Deloitte, and other technology players based in um, Europe, in continental Europe. Um, and it was launched around 2015, and I've been very lucky to be involved uh, in various ways since then. The idea of the initiative was to think beyond the commercial side of uh, financial behavior that we all talk about, that banks always talk about. The idea was to shift perspective and kind of think about the consumers, the way they behave in terms of financial decision making, and then thinking about what products and services to offer them um, so that they can then take the right uh, decision making. So. There are different aspects to this. I mean, the whole project looked at areas of financial decision making, primarily savings and credit loans. Um, we looked at uh, aspects of nudging to change behavior, family-based uh, planning of finances, budgeting. So there are different types of um, financial decisions we looked at as part of the wider initiative. And I actually ran one of the startups within this project in Amsterdam for about a year. And uh, that involved the specific aspect of um, lending uh, or loans and how we can adapt our behavior around that. I mean, there's a lot of behavioral science and research around that that's gone into this project. And that's what makes it so unique and fascinating uh, in that it's actually based on uh, behavioral science rather than uh, the decipher market. So it's actually going there to educate the consumers and changing the way consumers behave in a given situation. Uh, very, very challenging. And the program has since experimented with lots of new um, further ideas it's a great vision, I think, um, in terms of looking at the consumer first and not necessarily looking at the commercialization of these products. One last question on this topic. What do you see coming next for you, Burnmark and ING over the next year or so? I think th this year will be slow, to be very honest. Um, mm -hmm. We are not looking to make um, drastic changes this year with Burmark. This is a, fundamentally a, a global um, situation uh, causing us to do this. And uh, one of the things we will focus on is increasing the skills of the wider community through the research and data that we have. Um, like I've said, I mean, there was a gap in the market for certain types of market data, which I think we've, we have fixed to an extent and other players have fixed to an extent. I think the shift now has to happen towards uh, education in terms of how do we take this data, put it into a meaningful form so that we can educate more people coming into fintech with experience or without. And how do we bring in people from other industries to collaborate with this data and produce something absolutely brilliant? I think the skill side uh, is very exciting for me this year. And I think that's where a lot of the focus will be. 
let's talk a bit more about education, but with a different lens. Uh, I know you're also a lecturer. Uh, I hear you teach classes at Harvard. I, they're supposedly a pretty good school. I'm not sure. Uh, what is that experience like? So I teach the short-term course um, at the university, just to be very clear. And also I teach the master's course at Coventry University face-to-face -face, uh, here in the UK. Both very good universities. I'm not sure how it compares to Wharton, but <laughs> um, good universities nevertheless. I think teaching is something I, I've taken up as a, as a result of passion, really, for the industry. Like I said, I mean, we're fixing so many gaps and challenges in the fintech industry. And I've been involved um, in the space since around 2010 or so. So we have slowly changed the way we work and we've fixed those gaps. We have fixed the data problem. We've fixed the collaboration problem, the culture problem. I think one of the things that we are now starting to do is the education side. I mean, how many master's courses um, purely on fintech exist in the world today? Uh, and it, it's, it's really exciting to see an MSc fintech course uh, being taught here in London and me being part of that. And the same with short courses around the world. And it's not just these two. I, I work on and off uh, teaching several other universities uh, around the world, in Europe, in Asia, in, in the US. So it's a lot of things happening on this front. And that's why I said I think this year there will be a very heavy focus on uh, education. And I absolutely love it. I absolutely love bringing new people into the space and telling them the wonderful things that Finta can do. So it's a short course and you clearly have a huge wealth of knowledge on the industry. How have you started to structure the course? What topics do you typically like, like to cover? Um, so the Harvard course is pretty um, well structured already by professors within Harvard. I think the the Coventry University Masters in FinTech um, has been quite exciting because I've had to kind of help with the design of the whole curriculum from scratch. A couple of years ago when no such courses existed, and it's interesting because I have quite a few different universities reach out to me this year to ask about the curriculum and what to have in a master's course. So it's clearly worked at Coventry. And I think in both these courses, the Harvard short course and the Coventry master's one, um, there's a lot of focus on the introduction side to FinTech. I think the audience is different because the Harvard short course is aimed at professionals. And I think even though the audience is quite different, there is an element of introducing different parts of fintech from rec tech, from to payments, to lending, to AI, to blockchain, and to areas like um, prop tech and insure tech that's rarely covered in university courses. So it's a wide variety of segments we look at in both case study form and the curriculum form. It's quite exciting because I can add a lot of practical use cases and data from our work at Burnmark into these courses. And I think that's a really good um, synergy there. Yeah, I love when pr professors bring in actual data from, from whatever else they're working on. So that sounds great. Um, let's uh, assume that some of our listeners, I'm sure they are uh, fairly new to the industry, trying to get up to this up to speed. Uh, what would you recommend in terms of reading or sources that you particularly like uh, to help them ramp up? Um, I'm going to give an unconventional answer here because what helped me the most was being on Twitter. And, and the reason I say that is because the amount of written material or academic material on fintech today is very little. Even if it's produced, 
it's uh, produced from the point of view of the person who has been involved in that, which means it's either a point of view of a banker or the point of view of a fintech startup person or the point of view of, a, of an academic uh, person with a university. And I don't think a particular point of view helps in, in us understanding fintech. For me, the solution was Twitter and social media. I spent a lot of time watching conversations between investors, between startups, what universities and lecturers are talking about, what bank, I mean, there are very few bankers on Twitter, but it, it's still interesting to see the few who are there talk to startups. And I think that's where I got um, my points of view, and there are multiple ones um, that I usually include in my teaching as well. And I think, I think that's the, the challenge, right? I mean, you don't want to have a whole book written by one person who has a single singular point of view. Uh, I think that's that's a problem. If I suggest a reading material, it will have a singular point of view. I think that's um, that's one way to solve it. Um, it's a social media, and another way to look at it is through reading blogs and understand that there is a point of view to this. But what is my point of view? I learned a lot just by writing. I think by researching different sources and writing my own point of view which combined all of these different points of view I was getting, I think that's really helped me as well. I think, um, I mean, that's what I would do or recommend. I would say I'm pretty new to Twitter and probably 90% of the accounts I follow are fintech related. There's always new content being pushed out. Who is your favorite fintech account that you like to follow or one that you think provides particularly insightful information? I think a lot of the fintech accounts now uh, push a lot of content that may or may not be um, relevant um, to what you are researching. I think a lot of PR exists as well. So that's a um, challenge, I would say, to any new person on fintech Twitter. Um, you will probably need to sift through a lot of content, which I didn't have to do back in 2014 when I started. I still admire the the people who used to tweet back then. Brett King, of course, Chris Kinner, Pascal Bouvier, um, I mean, all, all the people who were tweeting in 2014, I think I still admire them a lot. And some of my close friends, um, Duena Blomstrom in the UK, uh, they, they've shifted slightly away from fintech now after all these years, but I still absolutely enjoy um, watching their Twitter. Got it. And in the previous question, you could have uh, plugged your own book and you didn't, you didn't, so I'll have to plug it for you. So you've, uh, in 2020, you released the Financial Services Guide to Fintech, Driving Banking Innovation Through Effective Partnerships. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the process of writing that book or why you decided to go about uh, publishing a book? Um, I, I think I probably killed the market for my book by <laughs> saying answering the previous question. I think I do have a very unique point of view in the way I look at fintech because I'm not a PhD with an academic background. I'm not an entrepreneur uh, because I do run a startup but doesn't make me a full-time entrepreneur. And I'm not a trained research professional either. So I've come to this space by plugging gaps in the market and figuring what needs to be done and then doing it. I think that has created a very unique point of view uh, and hopefully that features in the book as well because it's not written by someone who's worked in a bank or startup for years or a consulting firm or a regulator. It's a, an observational um, book that I've written. And it covers a lot of that data and the practical use cases that I've been talking about because ultimately you want to put stories and numbers to what you're talking about. 
Um, and I think that's something that I really struggle with when I read books um, already available in the fintech world or blogs. I mean, this is one thing I always look for. Is there a real story in this? Or are there numbers that I can use to make sense of it and say whether it's worked or not? And this book actually does that, hopefully, <laughs> in saying that this is actually uh, a practical way of doing things. So this case study has worked in that country or this case study has not worked for these reasons. And it's quite a practical way of looking at it. And I think that's it, it really come, came from um, that point of view of being an observer rather than an industry professional who has been doing that for years. Could we get a teaser? Uh, any particularly exciting case studies uh, that you wrote about? Well, I mean, every chapter has so many case studies in that. Some of my favorite ones are probably uh, ones based in Singapore. So I talk a lot about Asia purely because um, I anticipate the audience to be primarily in Europe and the US, um, yeah, although I don't think that's the case, to be honest. And I wanted to bring those case studies um, to, uh, here. Um, Singapore has DBS Bank, which has done fantastic things with digital transformation. The MAS, the regulatory body there, they have done amazing things, especially with the KYC utility. I've also looked at case studies from India, where I'm from, with the Stack, which is the identity program they have, um, which has been a really great case study of how to do things. I've looked at community-based lending in, from Africa, which is, again, um, a case study that works well in Africa and the countries that program is in, but not really <laughs> in Europe. Uh, but it's still fascinating to look at all these different ways of uh, using social media or dealing with things to their strength in order to provide a very good financial service. A great example is Impasa in Kenya, where people don't have smartphones, people don't have the fancy internet-based devices or IoT or even laptops. How do we empower such a group of people to start using uh, technology-based solutions for banking? And Impasa is a great example because they use basic phone services, which is quite a lot in, in terms of penetration numbers in Africa. And with those basic phones, you can do everything you need to do in terms of financial access. The next step of financial access, which is uh, education in terms of how to save, how much to save, how to invest and how much to invest, that I believe is a second phase of fintech. But the primary phase of fintech, access to savings, lending, and basic money transfer can be done very easily with minimal technology. And it's been seen in India as well as um, in countries like Kenya and uh, Tanzania. And the next step, of course, is what we tend to focus on in Europe and the US. And it, it does frustrate me sometimes to see that because fintech is not all about smartphones and apps. It shouldn't be. I mean, there's so much beyond that we don't talk about enough. The M-Pesa case was one of the first cases uh, that we studied at Wharton, so it's nice to see we're reading the right content. Was this your first book that you published? Uh, if so, any surprises in the writing process or the publishing process that you didn't see? Uh, yes, it was. I did blog a lot, and I do enjoy writing um, when I got the offer from the publisher. It was quite um, an unexpected surprise for me to get that offer, but it, it was quite exciting to me still. I think the biggest challenge I had was time. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm really bad at time management and I'm really bad at sitting down in one place and writing for long periods of time. I think the maximum I've ever written before was um, a blog of maybe 2,000 words in two hours, but 
I think writing a book of 75,000 words was <laughs> quite, quite a challenge. And I'm finding the same problem with my next book as well. Um, I think I just need to um, learn discipline again, which I used to have in probably in my university and school days, but I need to bring it back. Now I have to ask, what's the, what's the topic of the next book? Um, it's probably not um, too soon to <laughs> announce on this podcast, but um, <laughs> it will be on a topic that's very close to my heart. It will be more about how can fintech do good things um, for the world rather than talk about practical use cases this time. So it's, it's probably more emotionally driven, this one. I'm in talks for another one as well, which is a collaboration with different academicians. Um, so I have two books I'm actually writing. Maybe we can zoom out for a little bit. Um, you're frequently listed as one of the most influential people and one of the most influential women in fintech. Uh, what does that mean for you? And influence is a subjective phenomenon, I think. I think uh, what is influential to you may not be influential to me. I think um, it depends on the, the way we look at the solutions um, in the market and the timing at which you look at it. Uh, look at it through a certain lens. So yes, it is difficult for me to kind of call myself influential because I don't think I am all the time to all people. But having said that, to me, influence means the ability to change the direction of fintech, to guide people through fintech effectively, fix the gaps and challenges as much as we can, and also guide the direction of the wider industry over the next uh, few years. And that's what I try to do with everything that I take on, um, from Burnmark to the teaching that I do, to the books that I write. I think that's the idea. The idea is that you have solid content and information out there, which is your legacy, which is going to affect the industry for uh, future uh, periods. Um, and hopefully that's influence. And uh, that's what I am I'm, I'm contributing to. Between the being a founder, an author, and a lecturer, I would say you've definitely got a strong influence on at least the people that are listening. What about the industry over, overall? Where do you see it going or where do you hope to see it go over the next three to five years? Uh, any trends that you're particularly excited about? I think um, fintech will disappear slowly and that's not a bad thing. I say that in a very, very good way. It doesn't have to be always visible and be called fintech. Uh, just like we spoke about MPESA, right? I mean, I don't think many people call MPESA fintech, uh, mainly because it's it's a telecom-based uh, banking industry. And I don't think many people will call the identity program we have in India, Aadhaar, uh, fintech. It's not. It's an identity program. I don't think many people will call the, um, the onboarding, the KYC utility that Singapore has built as fintech, right? So all of these things that are actually... Um, fintech in a way because it supports the banking industry through tech um, they're not necessarily um, called fintech today and i think that will happen more and more where where the startups disappear into a world of um, technology and then that will disappear too uh, because they will be part of the existing industries for example you'll just talk to siri or alexa and say um you want to send money to that friend or um, you want to start um, saving in, in that particular product or you want to start an isa um so any of these things can be done without actually using an app without actually using um, a bank account and when that happens uh, fintech will disappear as an industry as a term 
because it will be such an integral part of our lives. Um, and I think that the best example we can um, relate this to is the NASA program, because we always see the space, the rockets being launched and the NASA programs, in fact. But the, one of the biggest products that have come out of the NASA program is the microwave oven. The technology for that came from the research for, on space that NASA was doing. And I think FinTech will be similar. It will contribute immensely to various things that we already do in our lives. And then it will become so integrated that we don't realize that FinTech created it. Well, maybe I'm an outlier, but I call everything even tangentially related to FinTech a FinTech product. <laughs> All right, entering the final round of today's discussion, the rapid fire round. Um, so I'm just gonna ask you a few questions, hoping to get responses in roughly 10 seconds or less. Uh, are you ready? <laughs> All right. All right. Which accomplishment are you most proud of? Probably my book. Got it. And what was your first job? Well, my first job was as an unpaid intern at IBM doing an engineering job. Nice. Um, what's a fun fact that most people don't know about you? Um, I love traveling and I have traveled to 52 countries. I really hope to touch 60 next year. That's great. Did you, I imagine the uh, pandemic uh, brought you back a little bit in your travel plans, anything that you're uh, looking forward to do once uh, things open up? Absolutely, I'm counting the days. <laughs> Got it. Um, what was the last show you binge watched? Um, I watch a lot of um, Korean dramas. Um, maybe I shouldn't admit it on um, in a public <laughs> forum, but uh, I watch a lot of Korean dramas. So the last one I, I watched was one. I like it. And last question, you can take a little bit more time on this one. Uh, what does success look like for you? I think success is quite subjective again. Um, to me, it, it's um, striking the right uh, work-life balance, I think. As I've said, I try to do so much. And there are so many things I haven't spoken about because I do spend a lot of time with uh, community and government initiatives and things like that. Of course, running the household and uh, bringing up you know, children. And so there's a lot of things that actually happen beyond all the things we talked about. So I think striking that work-life balance without seemingly sacrifice a lot of things and doing them properly, I guess, <laughs> to a certain extent, I would say that's quite successful. That's a great answer. Is there anything that uh, I didn't ask you that you would want to touch on uh, on this podcast before we sign off? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. It's been quite fun. It's been so much fun to hear your perspective. Davey, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, incredibly insightful answers. Um, and I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy this one. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.